WAVE is a statewide organization that's been working in Wisconsin to prevent gun violence through education and advocacy for more than 20 years. Tonight, in partnership with our sponsoring organizations, we are coming together to give voice to the endless ways that gun violence impacts our lives. We will stand together as many brave individuals share their stories. And one of our goals in this project is to create a better understanding of the things we can do to prevent gun violence, both as individuals and as a community. So moving forward, we will be organizing advocacy trainings. In the trainings, we will identify um, ways that our local, state, and federal elected officials can help us make changes. And to make sure that everybody, um, and to make sure through these trainings that everybody feels comfortable in that process. So please sign up and at the back table. If you didn't already, we'll be passing around um, clipboards. Um, but we want to be able to reach out to you and as a group come back together and use our voices to create change. Um, in the coming weeks, one thing that we can all do is make sure that we vote on April 2nd uh, in the spring election. And I would ask you, in addition to that, to reach out to five or 10 of your friends and family members and make sure that they get to the polls for that spring election vote on April 2nd as well. Um, and finally, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our sponsors who helped um, organize and public publicize the event tonight. Um, we'd like to thank the African American Civic Engagement Roundtable, Mothers Against Gun Violence, the City of Milwaukee Health Department Office of Violence Prevention, Marquette University Center for Peacemaking, Rid Racism, Milwaukee, Brady United Against Gun Violence, and the Victims of Milwaukee Violence Burial Fund. What does gun violence look like in America? It looks like 30,000 deaths per year. It looks like about 20,000 suicides per year. 10,000 homicides per year. As of recent, it looks like one mass murder per day is what we're averaging. But we know that these <clears throat> gun deaths are much more than numbers. We know that these gun deaths have a story behind all of them. They look like a young girl walking into her mother's bedroom and telling her, Mom, I've been shot. They look like a mother getting a phone call and knowing that her son is not coming home that evening. It looks like a sunny summer Sunday morning when six people are taken at their place of prayer where they find refuge. It looks like 50 people being taken from their place of prayer. It looks like an Ami grieving. It looks like an Abba grieving. It looks like a grandmother never being able to see her grandchild again. These are the real stories behind the horrific tragedies. This is why I'm so 
happy that, that gun violence is getting its day. This is much more than a numbers thing. It's a spiritual thing. And I thank you, Alou. I thank you, Heidi. I thank, thank everybody for being here tonight and being able to exchange in the spiritual journey. So as we do that and as we take on the heaviness of what this burden brings us, I'm just going to ask everyone to close their eyes and reach next to them and maybe grab each other's hands. This is much more than us being committed. I'm sorry, inspired. This is us being committed. We've been committed for the past seven years and we promise that we'll be committed going forward. This promise is a promise to our children, their children's children. And it might not look just like New Zealand where they can pass gun legislation like that. We might be in this for the long haul and it's okay. But for that long haul, we're going to need spiritual love. We're going to need connection. And we're going to need a lot of healing. So let's, for that, and for that commitment going forward, I'm going to ask you all to close your eyes. Just kind of feel the neighbor next to you. And on the count of three, I'm going to have you say the word love in your mind, in your heart. Not out loud. One, two, three. I'm going to have you say it one more time. One, two, three. Keep your eyes closed. This is the voice that connects all of us. Whether we call it Allah, whether we call it Jesus, whether we call it Nanak, whether we call it Yahweh, this is the voice of the divine that exists within every body and everything. This is your connection. It knows no race. It knows no gender. It knows no religion. All it knows is love. Thank you. So my name is Cheryl McFarland. And um, I am a Milwaukee resident. And back in 2000 and, um, 2005, my only son was killed. He was shot in the back. And um, he was going to pick a friend up from a location where there was an altercation going on most of the day. And um, he was the first one that was shot. He wasn't at the scene of the altercation, but he was called to the scene. Not for backup, but for what his friend said, come and pick me up, man. I need a ride home. But he never said um, how things had escalated that day throughout the day that everyone who came or was there was in danger. So he was the first one. He got out his car, rang the doorbell, and he was the first one shot on the porch. Never saw it coming. Um, young man came out the back door went around the bush and just shot him in the back and he fell off the banister and fell onto the ground and he lay there about five minutes and the young man who did it, um, he was using his girlfriend's gun. So I think I want to say something about how um, it's just too easy for 
for people to get guns. You know, I, I can't say that she was mentally ill or he was mentally ill, but I really feel it should be a lot harder for people to get a gun because she was the person who uh, had the gun registered that he used that fatally, you know, killed my son. He died from extinguination. And so um, I recall, you know, just standing here, I recall, it was like, well, what's extinguination? You know, I read it on the autopsy report. I have a lot of hindsights that are 2020. So what's extinguination? And, and my doctor would not, I asked my doctor, you know, what that meant. And he was like, I think you should look it up. And I didn't understand, you know, why would he tell me that I trusted my doctor? I figured he would tell me, right? But I think he was um, sparing me from breaking down in front of him just to learn the details that extinguination is when if you get an injury, the blood does not come out of your body. It stays inside and it fills up all your organs. So you really die or drown in your own blood. So three weeks later, he called me up on the phone, which is something he's never done. This is the doctor. And he's like, well, did you find out the definition? And I was like, yes, but you could have told me, right? And he was like, no. He said, so should I? make arrangements for you to see someone. So I paused for a minute because, you know, um, I just put it out there. You know black folks don't go see psychiatrists or talk to anybody about their problems. So I paused. I paused and I said, well, I said, yeah, because I'm not sleeping well at night. So we could, we could try it. It was something different. I knew I needed some help. But long story short, um, that happened in, that happened May 17, 2005. And so, now that may seem like a long time to you guys, but trust me, every day, every day I remember every detail. The smell, you know, the pain, the fear, just everything about that. And one, one horrible thing about that day is I have yet to be able to walk down that block to go past that house, because it triggers everything again, just like it starts all over. So with that, we should keep in mind about our gun laws. We should make them tougher. Thank you. My life was impacted by gun violence. It was March 17th of 2016. So it's still, still fresh. It's still... Um, it's still raw. My son, Javantez Riley Sr., was actually with a friend who got a phone call from his sibling that there was a domestic violence um, incident at their house and asked for her brother to come to the house. And the brother asked for my son to ride with them. So my son never entered the home. And when the son confronted his father, his father went in the room, got a gun, and decided that the best thing for him to do would be to shoot. So my son got shot. They, the way they explained it during the trial, he left out of the house and didn't even know he was shot, but then they found his house, this body um, a couple houses down where um, he, he died. It doesn't make sense because of the fact that there's so many things wrong with just that one incident. It's the fact that 
One, we're using our family members to address domestic violence situations. So that's, that's already a separate situation all by itself. Um, but that situation did a series of events that turned my life upside down. It was a different, it's a different, it's never the same. You'll never be the same after something like that happens. I lost a big part of me. He was my firstborn son. I have two other sons that are living, but it creates a whole different experience for you because you, all of a sudden, you become very guarded over what you have left, and you're very protective over what you have left. And you don't want to experience that loss, so you're just, you're, you're overly cautious, and you're overly aware, and you want to prevent things, and none of this you have any control over. So, heartbroken, I mean, it's a light term, that's an understatement with what you feel when, for me, my experience, I had two detectives come to my job and they showed me a picture of my son and it was challenging because they initially, they criminalized my son because they asked me, has he ever been known to carry a, a gun? And I was like, no. And that's when they proceeded to tell me that there was an altercation at the house and my son was shot and he was dead. So now I'm affected because of the fact that this, this is my place of work. This is a place that I report to every day. I'm a nurse and I help other people. But now I look at this environment different because now this is when I lost a part of me. I mean, I, I cried like there was no other way of feeling the pride before. So, so for me, how I'm impacted, I'm impacted like when I watch the news and I, I hear about another person getting shot, you know, someone lost a son, a daughter, um, a, a loved one, and the thing is it was by a convicted felon. The man who shot my son was actually a convicted felon, not once but twice convicted. That makes no sense for a person to be able to allow to have a handgun when they were told repeatedly, do not have a handgun. But it's a reminder that our laws are not tough enough. One of the responsibilities for our laws is to protect the public. We're not doing that. We need to make a change when it comes to that. I'm affected every day when I'm looking at the friends of my, my son and the loved ones, that they are trying to find a way to cope, not with just the loss of my son, but other family members and loved ones that they're losing from gun violence. So, and then I'm also affected because my son had a, grand, a son. So that was my four-year-old grandson that now doesn't have a personal relationship without, without his father, and he's forced to grow up without one. So, thank you. My name is Deborah Gillespie, and on September the 25th, 20, 2003, I was awakened with this horrible nightmare, and I just shook it off and went downstairs and grabbed some coffee, and my husband just rushed to me and held me and asked me if I was okay. And it hit me. I didn't have a nightmare. Yesterday, my son was murdered. And the reality, it just shook my core. Every time someone loses someone to gun violence, that next, the first time they go to sleep, when they wake up, they think it's a nightmare. They can't believe that that happened, just like I didn't believe it, but it did. What I'd like to see changed is some responsible gun legislation. I know that means different things to different people, 
but bottom line is no one's trying to take away the second amendment we just simply want gun owners to be responsible and in the case of my story with my son i tried to go after the gun owner but he claimed that the gun had been stolen and fine turns out you don't have to report if your gun is stolen so who's to say that that gun owner is purposefully buying guns and selling it to those who illegally can't purchase one so that loophole needs to be closed again i'm not advocating not carrying a gun or having a gun my husband has a collection but i am saying be responsible and thank you for this opportunity so when i was asked to speak about a story I realize that the problem I have is picking the story to talk about. Being a young black man, age 32, I look at myself as young still, um, I've seen the first time I lost a friend to gun violence is I was in ninth grade. And it was because of a carjacking. The second time I lost a friend to gun violence was because his girlfriend wanted to scare him and ended up actually shooting him in the head. With all the different experiences that I've either seen after the fact or heard about, this is one of the reasons why I am before you today. When I think about what we need to do here in the state of Wisconsin, many of you already know, it's closing the gun show loophole, is making sure that we have background checks and making sure that we can pass red flag laws. And I'm here to tell you that I'm going to continue to fight for you all. When I see the stories and I see the faces of those who have hurt and due to gun violence, it fuses me even more to almost knock over some of the folks who don't understand this stuff. Because it's frustrating because you pour your heart and your soul into why these things need to change and people still look at you as if that was just an isolated incident until it touches them. And so I say that because now we've been working on red flag laws for a couple of years with Wade and we've tried to get it passed. But it wasn't until a particular former senator here in the state of Wisconsin took his own life to where a majority of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle now want to tackle red flag laws. Now I'm grateful that they want to do that, but it hurts me that it has to happen. Something has to happen to them for them to understand that this affects the masses of folks, especially in a city like Milwaukee. So what I want to tell you all is that continue to tell your story. Speak up, speak out, because it's your stories that help move people. And even though that there may be some folks who are not listening, you are still touching them in some type of capacity through your story. Because I guarantee you, it's gonna be hard for them not to remember your face after hearing that story. So again, I thank you for this opportunity. And I want to let you know that I'm in this fight in making sure that we can reduce and stop all gun violence, not only in the city, throughout the state of Wisconsin in general.
So thank you for this opportunity, and thank you for sharing your story. So if you went back to the time when I was younger, a lot of my teachers would have described me the same way. Smart and compassionate, but also a spitfire. I never really had a way to harness that energy. My parents raised me with a compassion for others and a desire to always give back. I started getting involved in different groups, but none of it really felt like the right fit. Then Parkland happened. After going through so many mass shootings in this country, I remember a lot of students thinking, well, this one won't be any different. Just another Sandy Hook, another Virginia Tech, another Columbine. But this time was different. A few of my friends and I jumped on starting a walkout as soon as we could. We knew we couldn't sit idly by and wait for nothing to be done again. Our school isn't entirely friendly to changemakers. I remember sitting in many meetings with my principal and school board members deeming if this was worth the attention. Our principal didn't want us causing trouble for their precious, precious image, I suppose. We went to a school very similar to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. Nice area, nice families. But our school had its fair share of shooting and bomb threats. Before I got to high school, my brother was talking to my mom one day about staying home from school because there was another threat, saying it so casually. And I just thought, is that what my high school experience is supposed to be like? Am I supposed to be afraid of someone attacking children at my place of learning? Just like so many, they became hoaxes. But the worst one was during a meeting for one of the walkouts with my friends. The seniors had off that day of school, but all of our friends that weren't seniors were there. We all sat there wondering, was this actually, actually real? Were our siblings and friends okay? We worried about the walkout a little more after that. Ever since I was around 11 or 12, we had had school shooter drills, more frequent than fire drills, because that's more likely to happen. We treated visitors like possible enemies and classroom doors were locked. We practiced lockdown drills frequently. There was one day where the voice came on the speaker telling us, this is a lockdown. The word drill noticeably absent. We sat there, a group of 12 year olds all huddled together. As I'm older now, I realized instead of actually instituting policies that would protect us, we're instead forced to develop measures to protect ourselves against gun violence. But our walkout was a success, and it led us on to march for our lives. And after that experience of marching in solidarity with so many across the country, calling for gun reform and remembering those lost, it was time to sit around. It was not time to sit around, but to do, but to take action. That summer, I was lucky enough to find Wisconsin anti-violence effort, a group I was familiar with from their work in Wisconsin Capitol and Wear Orange Day. Through that internship, I did exactly the work that I needed, something I knew that was making an impact. Our goals were to register voters, raise awareness for gun violence, and hopefully inspire change, whether that be through policy or the actions of others. We wanted to impact the midterms, and I think we did. I finally felt, after not knowing how to harness that energy and desire for change, I was doing something I knew that would have an impact. That's the work I want to continue with, and WAVE gave me that. I was able to use my voice in a powerful way and fight for a cause that I believed in. It's not just mass shootings that are the issue, it's domestic abuse, it's violence in neighborhoods, gun suicides, and police violence. All of those need to be subject to change because we can't live in a world where gun violence is the norm for generations after us. All this activism has led me to where I am now, studying ways to change the world through policy and writing. I started a Women's March chapter on my campus at my school in Chicago, and we worked on events like the Kavanaugh protests and the midterms. And that certainly isn't stopping us. Gun violence prevention is still a very important issue and something that we haven't nearly made enough progress on. I want to end with a thank you to Wade and a thank you to the inspiring mentors and fellow interns I had there. You gave me skills and lessons to take with me, and for a summer, it was my home 
and my empowerment. I'm going to go out and keep fighting the good fight. Thank you. When I was uh, first advised that I would be telling my story, my story was so long and I would not be able to tell you in four to five minutes. And so every time I would go back to revise the draft, I think that subconsciously I was avoiding it. Because every time I would go back, I would think about a time, another time, that I was affected by gun violence. In 89, my dad was shot up. He survived. In 93, my cousin was shot and killed. In 96 or 97, I was headed to the library after school and was robbed at gunpoint. I'm not here to talk about the time uh, when I was out at the club in the early 2000s and shots were fired so close that I felt the gunpowder on my thigh. And I'm not here to talk about the time when I was headed home one evening and saw a guy get shot and collapse on the side of his truck. Six months ago, on September 18th, several hours after my aunt's funeral, my sister ran to my house to tell me that my son's father was killed, murdered inside of his home. Immediately, I was in denial about it until I picked up my phone and I had several phone calls from people who don't usually call me and messenger calls on Facebook from people who don't usually message me. And I think at that point, I knew something was wrong. So I was at the scene and the entire time I was at the scene, the only thing I could think about was how am I gonna tell my son? He's too shy to come up to tell you how he feels, but we've shared some of the same emotions. Sadness, anger, we feel vengeful, who did it and what can we do to them? Um, confused, lonely, and a bunch of feelings that we probably can't even explain. We've been affected quite a bit. This was a life-altering experience. He, his dad was killed on a Tuesday and my son had spent the entire weekend with him and he could never have any of those weekends again. A week after the funeral, the school asked if I had considered putting my son in a different school because he had started to experience some unfortunate but expected behavioral changes. And no, I had not considered putting him in a different school because when this happened, they told me this is the place for him. We love him. We have his back. But then when it got too tough, they pretty much said he had to go. Needless to say, three or four weeks ago, he was enrolled into another school. I've had to take a leave from work because when do you have time to grieve? When do you have time to grieve? He's supposed to get up and go to school like nothing ever happened. I'm supposed to get up and go to work the next day like everything's normal. So we're depressed. We're feeling stressed. We're feeling some anxiety. I have a six-year-old who doesn't want me to go out because she thinks I'm going to get shot. My babies are having dreams that I'm going to die. You know, and so those are ways that we've been affected um, by gun violence in Milwaukee. And I can't identify the traumas that I had growing up with all of those other instances that I told you about, but I'm sure that there was some type of effect from my childhood that wasn't addressed. And so I'm raising a son without his dad. And I'm sure that there are statistics about what that looks like, but I'm not going to let him look like that. Amen. Thank you. Can we make a round of applause for everybody with Wave real quick? Um, 
I'm, I'm thankful um, that I've had a chance to uh, work in this community with young people um, when we usually, uh, us or youth organizers, when we go into classrooms, we go into youth groups and we ask them what makes you mad in the morning um, when you wake up. What issues do you wish that you could change? The number one that comes up is gun violence. And it's because our young people so many times they witness uh, their friends, people that they know, their family, be affected by uh, this very, very important issue. Um, and I'm appreciative of my, of my colleague, David Crawley, for sharing his perspective and his story. Because part of why I was asked to speak today was to talk about that political dilemma of why we all can't get on the same page. And we do have to understand, we, we all have different lenses that we see this through. One of the things I try to do as much as possible is to understand um, the perspective of folks, um, especially in rural Wisconsin, where their relationship with guns and firearms is sometimes different than how we experience it right here in urban Milwaukee. I think there was still the ability for us to find that common ground because many of us have grew up in, uh, grown up in homes that, uh, where we had grandparents and, and parents and other family members that had firearms as well. But there also is uh, the importance so that we both, as we come to this debate, as we come to this discussion, we don't go to uh, the extremes, the, the sides of the argument that ends up shutting people down. And I think the main thing, uh, as, you, as you understand how things have impacted us and, and differently in different parts of Wisconsin, is that when you have this conversation and people are allowed to uh, kind of take their ball and go home and say, no, I don't want to have that conversation anymore. It's the same thing that destroys the solution um, that could allow us to find that common ground so that we can move forward together. So in New Zealand, um, as was talked about, they uh, had the incident um, at the mosque there. And uh, within 10 days, the leader of their country promised and committed that they would take measures to make sure that they would prevent those situations from happening ever again. And a part of uh, that package was banning assault weapons. Weapons that are designed to be handled by folks that are connected to the military. Um, it's a much different conversation than just talking about firearms. Um, we are talking about weapons of war. So as we have this conversation, we have to separate hunting rifles, we have to separate uh, firearms that our homes have access to and weapons of war that are used to destroy and take the lives of a lot of people very quickly. So a little bit about my background. I wasn't always a state representative. I was elected to the county board back in 2012. Um, I represented the 10th district and I loved that district. Awesome people that lived in Johnson Park neighborhood Lindsay Heights neighborhood, um, the Tiefen Tyler Park neighborhood, the Lindbergh Park neighborhood, um, the Johnson Park neighborhood, and 
we had a chance to do really cool community events. We brought back uh, the, the free uh, uh, park concert um, event that was shut down for some years because it would get kind of crazy every summer and get out of hand. But we knew that it was very important for us to have these positive community events to make sure that we could bring people together and show that we don't have to have violence, uh, we don't have to uh, argue or be mad at each other, but that we can actually express love in our community. Um, and back in 2014, um, Jacoby Davis um, was a 25-year-old young man um, playing basketball in the park at Tiffin Tyler Park, right in my district. And uh, his life was taken uh, in, a, in, a, in a shooting that day. And uh, no witnesses from the basketball court would come forward about who did it and share the information so that they could actually catch the person. And a lot of us were frustrated, the family was frustrated, um, that nobody was telling, nobody was sharing the information so that we could prevent um, this person from being on the streets. Um, and it wasn't until 2015 that that individual that caused that shooting actually was caught. Um, and people finally did come forward and share information and confirm that uh, it was this individual that, that caused that shooting and, and took Jacoby's life. Um, I think about how mad I was in that moment. That I, one, couldn't do anything. Felt like it happened right in my own neck of the woods. Um, the area that I'm supposed to be a, a leader for. Um, that I'm supposed to be able to give insight of how it's so much better in my district. But in that in that moment, I felt more powerless, even as an elected official, where sometimes people feel like this is where you're supposed to have power. This is where you're supposed to be able to make decisions. Um, and we had a really important bill at the state. Fast forward uh, three years, right? I'm at the state. And uh, we're having a conversation on felons um, that are convicted of firearm uh, crimes and uh, they get convicted for the second time um, of having a firearm and, and using it and it was a real big debate if we should have a mandatory minimum to ensure that those individuals who still are not listening um, that they cannot have access to a firearm to continue to be on the streets um, using firearms against innocent people. Um, and we debated in our caucus on the Democratic side, and we had allies, um, uh, a, a different uh, group of allies that came together to pass that bill. Um, but it was important that we did, because um, you know, as we have this conversation about prevention and the importance of investing into, into our communities so that we um, are not continuing to have these situations, but when we do, um, how do we make sure that individuals can really get the help that they need? Uh, and I think our attitude towards firearms um, is one that, that has to be adjusted. It's one that we have to be cognizant of, especially for individuals that are completely separate than the homeowner in their home that has a firearm um, to 
protect their family or completely different than the individual that goes out hunting. Um, uh, we are talking about individuals that are not trying to follow the law, that are not trying to respect our communities. Um, and it was in that moment that I kind of was able to see both sides and say that there's ability for us to come together and find some common ground, but just recognizing how very, very tough it is for us to all get on the same page. I really do hope, as I'm out of time, um, that we are able to get there, um, that we are able to have these conversations and not feel like that we have to leave, not feel like that we can continue to have that dialogue. I think that's the most important step forward. Thank you, guys.